Oh, come on. Good morning, folks. Happy New, Happy New Year. Has, has anyone been back to work after the Christmas New Year break yet? Yeah, that's us this morning. <laughs> Trying to get up, get moving after a few days of lions. Anyway, it's fantastic to see you and welcome. Um, did you do about the welcome pack and stuff? Um, we have, if you are visiting today, we are really glad that you're here, and we do have a welcome pack. We'd love to give you a CD. We'd love to give you. We just love to get to know you better, and we do have a welcome, a connect area, and we'd love to just say hello properly. So, if if that is you and you are new this morning, I'm just going to move that out of the way. Every time I look over there, I'm staring down a microphone. Um, uh, if that is you, then do come and say hi to us afterwards, and we'd love to get to know you better. We have a Connect card, and we'd love to uh, meet and greet you. If you are new this morning, um, then uh, I'm going to slightly apologise, because we're diving in in the middle of quite a big series that we've been talking about in Romans. And we're diving straight back into the book of Romans this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, um, you'll need to turn it up to chapter 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, or do you know they actually make it in paper these days as well? Um, that we've got a few kicking around at the back, and you're welcome to, uh, to grab one. And if you guys could also give those sheets out for me, I'd be um, really grateful. Um, and while they're doing that, um, I will just kind of briefly recap on where we've been. Um, we've been doing this great big series... Uh, through Romans. Romans is a long, long book. We got up to the end of chapter 8 before Christmas, and you'll be pleased to know that this morning, oh, that's wrong. Oh, there you go. Ha, I've done that wrong. On your sheet, it's correct. We've actually moved on from hope to unity. This morning, we're on to the next section. Okay, so gloss over that. That's... Uh First New Year. We have been talking previously in Romans. Paul has outlined his whole argument for why it is that the gospel is so powerful and important. Um, I won't go through all the details, but we talked about it a bit like this, a bit like this duel against the dark background, and, uh, and that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. It's there on your sheet, a little summary statements. And, uh, and we are continuing that journey with chapter 9 and a bit of chapter 10 this morning. And do you know the challenge of what they call expository preaching, in other words, doing what we're doing now, preaching through the Bible, just taking each section and the next section and the next section. The challenge of that is that you do come upon some chapters and some sections which are quite tricky, quite tricky, and um, it, throws up, uh, it throws up all kinds of questions, and um, sometimes it's frankly just easier to ignore it. But I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> Paul tells the Ephesians in Acts, I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. I.e., despite some parts of God's word being tricky or unpopular or just hard to understand, Paul's courageous example was to teach the whole Bible. And we're going to try and follow that example this morning. If you take Romans chapter 9 to 11, it kind of stands on its own as a little bit of a section and it could feel, in one way, a bit out of place in the narrative. If you look at that, uh, oh, hello. That's gone there. If you look at that, uh, that, gra- that diagram that I've made for you on the top of your sheet with the, uh, with, with the sort of um, mountain thing, uh, some people, to be honest, they get to chapter 8 and they, and they just skip right over to chapter 12. That's what they do. And, and it, I don't blame them because it kind of follows from 8 to 12. You know, we, we talked about chapter 8 before Christmas and uh, Romans chapter 8 is all about sort of, it, it sort of builds to this great crescendo. It's almost a little of a, bit of a pinnacle in itself. 
It talks about, uh, Paul talks this, he set out this argument all through seven and a half chapters, um, right up to this great statement about his confidence in God, about how salvation is part of God's overall plan for each of us, how we can face anything, any trial, any difficult thing, because Jesus has a glorious future for us and nothing will cut us off from his love. It felt like we were just about to arrive at the summit. And actually, you know, chapter 12 is an obvious next place to go. You know, when, when it says in view of God's mercy and all that he's done for you, this is how we should respond. But Paul doesn't do that. And instead we have three chapters on Israel and how it is that the gospel affects the Jewish nation. And historically, as I said, the church has at best completely ignored and at worst completely misunderstood and misinterpreted these passages. In, far as, in as far as how we Christians, believers, mostly I would imagine Gentiles for us, how we relate to those of the Jewish faith. Now, it is a fluke that on my drawing, I'll just go back to that, it is a fluke that on my drawing there's a little bit of a steep, very steep sort of angle up just before we get to the top. That, isn't, that wasn't planned, that was just the way that this diagram came out. But it's maybe not a fluke, because this, this can be a bit tricky. But Paul, is, what he's doing here is he's effectively asking and answering. That's what, we got, that's what we got to before. If God is for us, who is against us? And Paul kind of goes straight on and basically asks and answers this question. So if Jesus has come and saved us and he's promised this glorious life and he's replaced the law and he's replaced the covenants of the Old Testament, what about the Jews? How do they fit into this picture? And how do we as Christians relate to Jewish people? What should our own attitude be? I don't know if you've got much experience of um, hanging out with or relating with Jewish people. From the age of 11, I um, grew up in a part of Leeds where quite a lot of Jewish people lived, to be honest. And they were all around us. Uh, They were in my school. There were a number of synagogues in my local area. Um, I thought it was a good deal if you were a Jewish kid because you got extra days off school for festivals. Um, Many of them, honestly, just the ones that I knew anyway, didn't seem to take their religion very seriously in terms of a kind of deep personal faith. Although there was a small group who lived near us who really did, and you could tell that because they wore different clothes and they had hats on and beards like this, and and they were obviously very serious, and you'd see them walking around um, quite seriously. But, you know, my my nana, um, until a couple of years ago, she still lived there um, in that area, and um, opposite her, she lived in these sort of sheltered flats, and opposite her flats on the other side of the main road was a synagogue. And uh, she would get really, really frustrated because on a Saturday... Okay, um, Jews who were trying to follow the law weren't supposed to be driving their car to the synagogue. So the synagogue gates got shut. There's a big car park in there and a big drive, but no one was allowed to drive there on a Saturday. And so what happened instead is that all the, uh, all the people who went to synagogue came along and parked their car in my nana's estate <laughs> you know, and walked over the road and headed off into the synagogue to give the impression that they were following the law and they weren't using their car on a, on a Sabbath. And... and and as you can, the hypocrisy of that just drove their residents crazy. <laughs> so like, they said to the, they, they, I think they went probably, and somebody must have gone and said to the, to the guys who run the, um, who, who run the synagogue, why don't you just open the car park? I mean, you know that everybody's using it, but, but it wouldn't happen. Anyway, the really good thing about living in a Jewish area for us was there was a fantastic Jewish bakery. And although they were shut on a Saturday, they opened on Saturday night and baked all the way through the night. And so either late on a Saturday night or very early on a Sunday morning, you could go and get the most fantastic fresh bagels. Really nice, warm, fresh bagels. But I actually don't remember being taught anything as a kid growing up about how I, as a Christian, was meant to think about or relate with people of Jewish faith. 
Now, maybe you did, maybe, maybe you've had that privilege. I, I never got that. And some people in my church were part of a group which promoted dialogue between Christians and Jews. And there was one guy who was a kind of evangelist, specifically an evangelist to Jewish people. And he would go out and he would go out, give out leaflets on the street explaining to Jewish people why it was that they needed to be saved, why it was that Jesus was their Messiah. And one day, I was a, quite a young guy, and I went with him. And I was just standing there on the, on the streets in Leeds, giving out tracks, just doing what, doing what he did. And, um, and one guy grabbed the tract off me, and he walked off, and he turned around, and he came back, and he absolutely let go at me. I think he was a Jewish guy. And he was ranting at me, and he was having an absolute go at me. Really, I was a bit shocked, a bit blown away. And he was accusing me of distributing the kind of material that caused the Holocaust. And I now, of course, looking back, I understand where he was coming from a bit. But of course, that wasn't my intention. I was only young. Then much, much later in my church in Birmingham, I ran into some other people, some more Christians, who were very passionate about Israel and about Jewish people and about praying for Israel and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, to be honest, just between you and me, they were pretty focused on this issue. And they were pretty militant about this issue. And this agenda tended to push into every single conversation that we and they had. They didn't seem to accommodate any other view or focus. And that really put me off. Because whatever it was that they were passionate or keen about, they just weren't very kind about it and they weren't very Jesus-like about it. And that's a real shame. Because at that point, I kind of switched off to this subject. And said, well, I'm not really interested in your views on Israel because the way that you're putting them across is not very godlike, very godly. And if I'm honest, I've been doing my best to avoid the issue ever since. Until I realised that here it is, right there in the middle of Romans. <laughs> Three chapters to us to tackle. So we're going to do our best to do that this week and next week. As you know, there's been a horrendous conflict going in in the Middle East all, pretty much all of my life. I, I, I don't know how to think about it sometimes. Probably like you, I'm, well, if you're like me, you're totally desensitised to it. Uh, over the past couple of years, as I've looked on Facebook, I've read articles about Israel and articles about Palestine and Articles about Jews and Arabs, and um, honestly, my, in, from what I've seen, from what people tend to share around Facebook, most of it's very unkind, very political, very partisan, often coming out of the United States, and one side or other is claiming the upper religious hand. And for my, I, I'm well aware that the full story of, of what's going on there isn't reported in our media. And for that reason, I've tried very hard not to engage on any political level, and what I've realized is that this isn't a political issue at all. This is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. And we have to be clear about that. And we have to separate the politics from what God is saying in the Bible and what God wants to do by his spirit. And so we have to go to the Bible for our spiritual perspective. And that's what we're doing this morning. And here Paul is really, really clearly trying to help us understand what God's heart is for Jewish people. Simon Ponsonby said this as a quote I've put on your sheet. It says, the real heart of this letter of Romans is actually not justification by faith, as some think, but actually the place of the Jews in God's ultimate plan of salvation. That's the heart of Romans. That's why Paul wrote Romans. The other stuff is helpful, very, very helpful, fantastic. But this is, a, this is the heart of it. And there are some tricky parts. And for the most part, Paul is clear. But much of what he writes has been misunderstood or ignored for centuries by the church, hopefully not today. So we're going to read a little bit of chapter 9, and then we're going to read some of chapter 10. 
And we're going to start at chapter 9 and read verses 1 to 5 together. And what I'm doing here today is laying the theology, and then next week we'll look at chapter 11, which is where perhaps some of the even more tricky parts come. Let's pray, shall we? (laughs) Father, help us. Lord, as we try and wrestle with uh, your word, we want to hear your voice, your heart. And Lord, where that challenges us directly, we're open to that. So come speak your words, Lord. And by your spirit, show us the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together uh, chapter 9. I'm reading for the NIV and verses 1 to 5. I speak the truth in Christ. This is Paul saying. Don't forget, this is straight after this amazing crescendo. If God is for us, who's against us? Nothing's going to separate us from God. It's almost like a massive, dramatic change. He suddenly turns around and says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now I'm going to read some more of chapter, uh, towards the end in chapter 10, but I want to make some comments on this section first. Because as you can see, this, Paul, Paul is completely emotional about this. This issue causes Paul distress. Great sorrow, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. It's emotionally charged. I mean, have you ever heard anyone say this? I would cut myself off from the saving grace of Jesus if it could be that that would make sure that my brothers, my race, they could, they could receive it. Have you ever thought that for yourself? I mean, he's just spent seven and a half, eight chapters describing the amazing and wonderful saving grace of Jesus. And then he turns around and says, but I would, I would, I would give away all of that if I could see my own race, my own brothers and sisters, the people of Israel experience it. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? This isn't the cold and emotional evangelist who's on after numbers and after building his own part up, you know, his own world platform. This is a man who's deeply on fire for God and deeply passionate for the salvation, yes, of the whole world and here specifically for the salvation of his own race. I wonder just the challenge for us. I wonder what we think about that. I wonder how on fire or passionate we are about our people. I mean, I'm guessing here that we all know people who don't know Jesus yet. Maybe it's our families or our friends. Maybe it's our community. Maybe it's our own cultural group. Whoever it is that God has chosen to place us in and among, I wonder how much we really care about them and their salvation. That's the challenge here. Paul is a man who is deeply troubled by his people's rejection of the Messiah Jesus. And he goes on in the next three or four verses to remind his audience of the deep heritage that Israel has in God. Here's the little, I'll put the verse up here. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. 
There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Now on your sheet, I have reproduced a table here. I've actually made it myself. I'm not going to go into all of the details of this table, but I would love you to look at it later. In this table, basically, it's just summarizing each of those kind of key areas, the gifts that God has given to his people, the Jews, the benefits that they receive from God. And then also on the table is the reference to how it is that those, each of those things points to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. I'll just take one example. Um, third, fourth, fourth line down, the law. The law. As we've explored earlier in previous chapters of Romans, God's people couldn't keep the law. No one can. Okay? He gave them the law. He said, if you can keep the law, you'll be able to get close to me. But what we've discovered is no one can. And so therefore God needed a different way. And the law pointed towards what Paul teaches in Romans 2. That if we truly understand the law and how it shows us that we can't keep the law and that we can't make it to God on our own, then we'll fully embrace Jesus. That's just one example. We need a way to deal with our sin once and for all. And that's where the Messiah comes in. And each of these kind of benefits, each of these gifts points towards the Messiah. Each finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I'd love you to take that away and study it for yourself. There are some references there that you can look up. And just ending at chapter 5, he says, the last thing he says is, from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God. You see, Jesus came from a Jewish background. Jesus was a Jew. He came from the Jewish line. He came from the Jewish culture. That statement in verse 5 is an amazing and remarkable, here's a big word, Christological statement. Christological just means who we're saying Jesus is. Who is it Paul is saying Jesus is? He's saying this is a human who came from Jewish, from the Jewish line, and yet he is the Messiah from God. You know, how many people, many people can accept that Jesus was born and brought up as a Jew, that he was a good man and a teacher probably, and maybe even a prophet. Paul states here, in the face of overwhelming evidence, this was the Messiah. The one who God promised all through the Old Testament would free God's people. The Messiah, Paul says, came from among the Jews, from among God's people. Jesus was Jewish. Christianity is a Jewish religion. And it was a privilege to be a Jew, part of God's chosen people. It was a privilege to be chosen. But as you know, privilege always comes with a price. And being chosen can be a burden as well as a joy. I don't know, some of you older folks might know who this guy is. This is, uh, this is from, the, from, a, from a, a film, a show, a musical called Fiddler on the Roof. This is a Jewish father, Tevier. And uh, he's weighed down by the burdens of poverty and anti-Semitism. You know, there's all sorts of horrendous things were done to the Jews. And he has these dialogues with God and he just says, I know, I know, I know we are your chosen people. Just once in a while, can you just choose someone else, please? <laughs> and this presents Paul an enormous challenge. What do we do about the Jews? Where do they fit into this message? Because all of this is clear and yet the Jews have rejected Jesus and said, no, he's not the Messiah. 
They were chosen by God, but they rejected his Messiah. Where does that leave them? What now? Has Judaism been replaced by the church? Some people think that that's true. It's absolutely not. And we'll talk more about that next week. Are the Jews still important to God? What's their place in his kingdom? These are the questions which many believers have been wrestling with for centuries. And there are two common religious errors regarding the Jews that I just want to flag up before we look into chapter 10. Um, I've put them on the other side of your page. I'll come, to, I'll come back to that. Um, there are two common mistakes made by Christians and others all the way down the line. The first one is that all Jews are perpetually saved on the basis of Abraham's bloodline. That's a common mistake, a common religious error. So in other words, what they're saying, what, the, what these people are saying is it's their Jewishness that saves them, not Jesus. Okay? It's their Jewishness. It suggests that the gospel is absolutely fine as a new covenant for Gentiles. But God's covenant with Abraham made at Mount Sinai still applies to all the Jews. And so as long as you're descended from Abraham and you've got his blood, you'll be saved. That's a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. And it's, it's really well-meaning, but it's profoundly wrong. And it's understandable for a number of reasons. But as I said, it's not right. And one of the contributing factors to why th- people think that is because of the next thing, which is an, also a mistake. And this mistake says that all Jews are perpetually cursed because it was their ancestors that killed Jesus. Okay? Now, this has been and is still a very deeply held view by many believers. And their logic, for what it's worth, it comes from, there's a verse in Matthew 27, 25, when you'll know that Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, he's innocent, I don't think you should kill him. And the crowd shout, no, you should kill him. And Pilate, exasperated, eventually says, well, I wash my hands of this, I have nothing to do with this. And the crowd shouts back, according to Matthew, his blood be on us and on our children. They say, we'll take responsibility for for his death. And therefore, Christians believe every single Jewish person from then until now inherits that curse because of their Jewish DNA. Now, that's a wrong argument. For a start, Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And for a second thing, the Jewish law actually says, states, you can't hold children accountable for the sins of the parents. So it's a wrong argument on every level. But actually, that idea has caused some pretty horrific anti-Semitism for centuries. And the truth is, the church has been at the center of most of that. If you start looking at this stuff, which I don't propose to in detail, it's just shocking. Here's just one quote. A guy called John Chrysanthemum, a preacher from the 4th century, They call him John the Golden Mouth. This is what he wrote. The Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are perfidious murderers of Christ. The Jews are the odious assassins of Christ. And for killing God, there is no expiation possible. No indulgence, no pardon. God always hated the Jews. Well, that's not true. It is an incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. This is what the church was preaching in the fourth century. Been preaching it all, all down the line. Such views justified Hitler 1,500 years later 
when he declared in 1938, this is what Hitler said, in the Gospels, the Jews called out to Pilate when he refused to have Jesus crucified, his blood be on us and upon our children. Hitler then said, perhaps I have fulfilled this, I have to fulfill this curse. And Hitler took, as his kind of motivating ideas, stuff which the church had been saying for thousands of years. Isn't that a tragedy? Because the consequences and the tragedy of both of these misconceptions is that the church, for the past 2,000 years, in the main, has not seen the need to preach the gospel to the Jews. Either because Christians believe that they're saved anyway, so it would be offensive to them, or because they think the Jews are perpetually cursed and could never be saved. And all of that flies in the face of what Paul is teaching here in Romans. Paul's heartbreaking passion to see his own people saved. So if you're here today and you're of Jewish descent, the first thing I want to say is how sorry I am that this happened in the name of God. It's just completely wrong. And we as believers, we need to repent of some of this stuff on behalf of our our predecessors. And if you are Jewish and you're here today, I really hope you can hear the rest of this talk in the spirit that it's meant, which is in love and respect. In the rest of chapter 9, which I'm going to skip over, Paul explains a quite complex principle of election. That, isn't, that doesn't mean how we vote for our government. It means how God chooses the people that he chooses to partner with him. And why specifically and how it is that God was able to choose the Jewish people to be his chosen people on earth. He doesn't always choose the most obvious. He doesn't always choose the firstborn. And he explains all of that. Paul explains all of that in the rest of chapter 9. I'm not going to go into it now. But I, I have put a link there, and I'll put that, this link on our website as well, to another talk, which if you want to explore that further, um, you might want to listen to. It's very good, very clear. I just don't have time to go there today. Um, talk by Simon Ponsonby. But what I do want to do is pick up the story at chapter, th- uh, chapter 9 still and verse 30. Okay, I want to pick up and read verse 30 and 31, and then I want to read verse chapter 10, the first 17 verses. So can you read with me? Is that Okay. So this is verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but that the people of Israel, Paul summarizes, who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. That's kind of a summary of what's happened. And then let's look on to chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be, may, may be righteousness. Lost my place. Sorry. For everyone who believes. Moses writes about this, about righteousness that is by law. He says, the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the deep. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And consequently, faith comes from the hearing of the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Paul couldn't be clearer about his desire to see Israel saved and about the need to preach the gospel. I can't read it any clearer. He's suggesting that we need to place a priority on sharing Jesus with Jewish people because like all people, Jewish people need to be saved. Now this might sound pretty clear, but as I've said, people have disagreed with this or ignored it for centuries. There's a guy called the Reverend Joseph Steinberg. He leads an organization called Christian Witness to Israel. He was, he was born himself into a Jewish family. But at quite an early age, as a teenager, found Jesus as his Messiah. He talks a little bit about the need for the roles to be reversed. You see, if you can remember, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples was what? What was it? Go. Go where? To all the world, to all nations. If you read it in, um, that's in Matthew, if you read it in Acts, he says, go and preach the gospel in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus was very clear with his instructions. You tend to remember the last thing someone says to you, don't you? The disciples went all the way as far as Jerusalem. And then they stopped <laughs> for some reason until Peter had a dream. You can read this in Acts, I think it's 10 or 13 or something, about Cornelius. And Peter has this dream and God has to speak very clearly. The gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. Do you remember this? Those of you who've read this part? That's my, you know, the gospel is for the Gentiles too. And God had to kind of, you know, really get their attention. And, and this guy, Joseph Steinberg, says it's almost like the roles have been reversed now. Let me read you what he says. He says, today the roles have been reversed. Then the Jews had a problem evangelizing Gentiles. Now the church has a problem evangelizing Jews. There's a prejudice against sharing Jesus with my, he calls them my people because he's from a Jewish background. And we have it bad in two ways. We either hear one side that romanticizes Judaism into a religion that saves, an idea that says the Jews have got their own way to God through their own religion, or the opposite idea that has permeated church history, the insidious idea that says the Jews rejected and killed Christ, so God has rejected them, and the church has replaced Israel. And it's all wrong. And I want to come back to some of those ideas next week. For the rest of today, I just want to focus on a few points from chapter 10, which show us what it is about Paul, and how it is that he kind of processes these things, and what he does about it. What he does about this desire that he has in his heart, this dream that he holds to see the whole world and particularly his people saved. Now, you may not know any Jewish people. Maybe you know people of a different religion who are looking for God. Maybe you know some Muslim people who are searching for, searching for the true God. 
certainly all of us will know people who are not saved. And all of us will know people who, if they're honest with themselves, are searching for something better than what they've got, are searching for some kind of God in their lives, and who do not know Jesus as their Saviour and Lord. If you don't know anybody like that, why not? I wonder if we can echo Paul's prayer here. You know, verse 1 says, In our hearts, that, what does he say in verse 1? He says, In my hearts, I lost the text. He says, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites that they may be saved. I wonder if you can fill in your own gap there. My heart's desire and prayer to God for, fill in your own blank here, to be saved. Do you ever pray that prayer? Do we pray that prayer often? Whoever those people are, whatever their cultural background is, four things that this meant for Paul. It meant that Paul was focused on Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Lord. If you look at this passage, I've actually reproduced it up here. You won't be able to see, um, I doubt you'll be able to read all that. But what you will be able to see is how many times he refers to Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. 14 times in this passage. Christ is the end of the law, verse 4. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Verse 9. The same Lord is the Lord of all, verse 12. <clears throat> this passage refers to Jesus 14 times, and Paul uses three different titles for him. He refers to him as Jesus, referring to his humanity, and his destiny as the Savior, Jesus the man. He refers to him as Lord, referring to his eternal nature, his divine nature, Jesus the God-man, if you like. And he refers to him as Christ, or Messiah, which is specifically referring to him as the sovereignty, as the son of David, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, which is what they crucified him as. And Paul holds all of these aspects of Jesus' character in the balance. And so should we. We need to remember that Jesus is the man who died for us. He's God who reigns and lives forever. And he's the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of the world, the savior. Now, Jesus is the center of everything. He's the bedrock of our faith. Our faith literally means nothing without him. That's why every Sunday when we gather, who is it we worship? Not Nigel and Joe, not the worship team, Jesus. We're here for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every day, every week, it's all about Jesus. There's a great quote from J. John there. He said this, if you take the Christ out of Christianity, you're just left with Ian and he can't help you. Apologies to any Ians we've got here. <laughs> Great people that you are. <laughs> it's possible to get so caught up with the activity of being a Christian that you forget to actually concentrate on Jesus sometimes, isn't it? Or, we just, or it's just embarrassing to talk about him or focus on him. People ask me all the time, so what do you do for a living? I try and be a bit creative when I talk about my job. And ideally what I try and get in in the first two or three sentences, is I help, I, I really try and help people connect with Jesus. I try and use his name. Because if I say oh, I'm a pastor of a church, I can see people's eyes glaze over straight away, you know, because they know what that's about. So I sort of say, well, I, 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 I'm just trying to follow Jesus. And when they ask me about my faith, I just say, well, you know, I try and get in there really early on. Just this idea that I, I'm not about following a religion. I'm, a, I'm about following Jesus. I'm about 
following a person, the person, the man, the God-man, the saviour. You know who Justin Welby is, the Archbishop of Canterbury? He's been doing that job, getting on for a couple of years now, doing an amazing job. Every time I read or listen to him speak, he talks about Jesus. Have you noticed that? And I heard him interviewed once and he said, you know, I realised, he said, that there were some great men of God who became archbishops, but when they became archbishops, they seemed to stop talking about Jesus. And I made it my mission that whenever I was speaking on whatever subject, be it a political, an economic, or a spiritual topic, I will talk about Jesus. And if you listen, it's always there. He's, it's always in there. He did an amazing talk to a carol service for people who lost babies and little children, and I just read a text of it uh, before Christmas. And in there, he's talking about Jesus all the time. Whatever he's talking about to the government, he's talking about economics, he's talking about the banks, he's talking about worklessness. Or It's all about Jesus. And Paul was focused on Jesus. The second thing was Paul was passionate about the lost and he prayed for them to be saved. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. His great affection for the Jews, it led him somewhere. It led him to intercession. It didn't just stop at affection. Paul was a praying man and he prayed because he cared. He often refers in his epistles to his prayers. I'm praying for you, he says. Ephesians 1, 16, I'm not ceasing to give thanks for you in my prayers. Paul believed and knew that his prayers were heard and they were effective. He believed in God's sovereignty. He didn't believe he could twist God's arm, but he knew that he could partner with God in seeing his kingdom purposes come about. Now, I'll just put my cards on the table here. I don't find praying consistently a very easy thing to do. Is there anybody else who's like me? Okay, good. Thanks for being honest. The rest of you, you're lying. No, I'm, no. Maybe you do, and that's wonderful. I've tried loads of ways of praying. Sometimes I find myself falling asleep or my mind drifting off. I've got lots of different tactics and methods I use. One is to write my prayers down. It's quite hard to fall asleep when you're in the middle of writing something. Um, but the things that keep me praying are either usually when I'm having a really tough time personally, Or when I'm praying for my friends and family who don't know Jesus. Except that if I'm honest, I don't even manage that sometimes. And Paul's example is a challenge, isn't it? He just kept praying. He just kept praying. He believed that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He believed in salvation. He only saw two categories of people. Those who were saved and those who weren't. There's a great illustration from, uh, from the Titanic. You know, when the Titanic died, when the Titanic went down, obviously the media wasn't what it, what it could be then. And, and outside the White Star offices, they had two boards. And it just simply said, known to be saved, known to be lost. And as relatives went to find out what's happened to their families, as, as people were identified, they went onto one of those two lists. Very stark, isn't it? Some people think God saves everyone, but that isn't what the Bible says, challenging as it is. Paul preached justification, righteousness, if you like. We've covered all this right back in chapter 2 and 3. He preached that it was by faith alone, that a person was saved 
on the basis of being declared righteous through their faith in God. And that's the only way to be saved. Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters went about their religious practices and their devotions. They tried to obey the law despite their zeal for God, Paul says, and their belief in God and trying to work hard to establish their own righteousness. Paul says they remain unsaved until they know God's righteousness, the full extent of his mercy. That's what the gospel is. Remember, the gospel is offensive because it tells you you can't get there on your own. It tells you the only way to connect with God is to admit that you just can't do it on your own. And that's what caused Paul such a great heartache, that these Jews who'd been waiting for their Messiah, who would save them, and yet when he came, they rejected them. And lastly, Paul believed in mission. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they've been sent? Paul is very logical. If people are lost, Paul says, if they're unsaved, and Christ alone is the saviour and the righteousness and salvation, you don't get it by zeal or good works or smiling nicely, but only by faith in Christ and only by confessing that he is the Lord. If that's the truth, then surely, logically, everyone needs to know this. So at least they have the invitation. And that means someone has to tell them. Um, There's a really famous preacher, Spurgeon, and in the sermon that he preached, he said this. He, He was voicing the cries, he's imagining this, of those who have never heard the gospel or received Christ. He said, imagine they're crying out to us in our comfortable churches and in our comfortable faith. It's not for yourselves you've received this, but for us. Give it to us. Come on, preach the gospel to us. It's been designed for us. That's challenging, isn't it? Question for you. How many of you found Jesus on your own without anybody telling you about him? Put your hand up. Brilliant. I knew there'd be a, th- I knew there'd be a few. And the rest of you, how many of you found Jesus because someone told you about him? Effectively, someone preached the gospel to you. Thank you. It can't be right for us to expect people who don't know Jesus to simply try and find him on their own. Oh, I know it happens, and brilliant, praise God when it does. Especially for you, Samir. <laughs> Especially for you. But brilliant. But it, 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 we, it must be our responsibility or our duty or our privilege to help people find Jesus. I'm nearly done. Mission or evangelism fails for one of three reasons. Okay? Either we don't believe people are lost, so we don't think that we have to tell them how to be found. Or we don't believe people are saved exclusively just by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, so we leave them to find their own way to God. Or we don't care either way. You know, I know a really good parking spot near the city centre. It's, it's, down a, it's down a little back road, it's free, and you can park there for two hours, and you're within a stone's throw of the centre of Winchester. And there's pretty much always a space there. It's a little hidden secret. <laughs> and I am not telling you where it is. <laughs> Except somebody told me about it. Thanks, mate, I forgot you told me about that. We know a little parking spot, don't we, Kevin? <laughs> That's the kind of information you don't want to share, <laughs> Okay. 
You keep it to yourself. Maybe you know a great coffee shop where the Wi-Fi is good, the coffee's great, it's quiet. If you do, you probably keep it to yourself because you don't want everyone going there. The gospel's not like that. The gospel's not for keeping to ourselves. This is for sharing. With love and respect to Jewish people, Muslims, and anyone else of any religion or background or none who is searching for God or for meaning in life, the onus is on us to share the gospel with them. That's what Paul's saying here. Shall we stand together? Van, do you want to come back up?